Second Samuel chapter 7, hear now the word of the Lord. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king sent to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies." Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a, a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods? And you established for, your, for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. This is the word of the Lord. 
Glenn preached on Colossians 1, 15 to 20 a few weeks ago. And I, I, I hope that at least a few of you re- remember what he said, because it forms a great foundation for what we're doing today. He started with Genesis 1 and 2 and used Psalm 8 to show how humanity was created in the image of God and how Christ comes as the one who restores the image of God because he is God and man in one person. Now, I'd, I normally would have used the same Old Testament lesson and psalm that Glenn did, but because he's already done that, I get to do the next step. And by... I I thought about using Exodus 4, where where God says to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my son go that he may serve me. Because we need to see that Israel was called to be the son of God, the firstborn. There's a way in which Israel is the renewed image of God that is being placed in the promised land, just like Adam and Eve had been placed in the Garden of Eden. That was... That, that's part of what God's doing as he calls Israel. In, in a sense, you could say he's, he's calling Israel to succeed where Adam failed. But of course, you know the story of the book of Judges. Israel doesn't succeed where Adam failed. Israel looks an awful lot like Adam. So that's why we read Second Samuel 7. Because, okay, Israel has failed. This is part of the reason why we have the, the kings. Israel has failed, and so we need a king who will do what is right in God's eyes, a king after God's own heart. And, so, and God makes this covenant with David, saying that he will be a father to David's son. Israel is my son. Well, now God says, David, your son will be my son. I will be to him a father. He will be to me a son. And God says, I will discipline the house of David, but I will never remove my steadfast love from David's house. My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Your house, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, as you keep reading through the Old Testament, you see Solomon then building the temple, the house for God's name. And Solomon also builds a palace right next door to the temple. And the temple has a uh, has the the sanctuary and then in the inner place there's the the holy of holies and there's no image in the temple now solomon's palace is built right next door and it also has an as a, 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 a the sort of this entry area which looks sort of similar to the entry to the temple and there's the inner throne room which sort of looks similar to the holy of holies and there is an image in the in the palace in the throne room Because Solomon is portrayed there as being sort of the image of God. He is, the the king is the one who now sort of bears God's image and is governing, ruling, having dominion over creation in the way that Adam was. Well, will the son of David succeed where Adam failed? Again, you know the story. The rest of the book of Kings is like... Our New Testament lesson comes from Colossians chapter 1. Hear now the word of our God from Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. 
of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. We've come to the center of Paul's opening sentence, basically, his opening paragraph to the Colossians. And we come to then the, the heart of who is Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul makes two points in verses 15 to 20. First, that Christ is the firstborn of creation, and secondly, that he is the firstborn from the dead. That the beloved Son, who has come in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is the center of all things. So Christ the beloved son is the firstborn of all creation. We usually think of Jesus as our savior, the one who has redeemed us from our sins. But it's also important to remember that the same beloved son is our creator. And this is Paul's point in verses 15 to 17, that this beloved son who has redeemed us, who is, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What does it mean that Christ is the image of the invisible God? It means that the Son is the very reflection of the Father. It's tied in with his being called the firstborn of all creation. A son is like his father. Adam was created in the image of God. He also is called a son of God. When Israel was called out of Egypt in Exodus 4.22, God said to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And so Israel is called to be the firstborn son of God. But then also, as we saw in 2 Samuel 7, that God promised to David that he would establish David's son upon his throne. And Psalm 89 speaks of how the Davidic king is the firstborn son of God. Uh, 
So who, who is the firstborn? It doesn't sound like there's many firstborns here. Who is the firstborn? Some might say Adam because he was created first. But what Paul's saying here is that Adam was not the first son of God. Adam was the image of God, but Adam was the image of the image. Because the eternal son was the image of the father before Adam was created. He, he was the image in the, in the beginning before there was a created image. The eternal son of God is the pure reflection of God's glory. In this sense, Adam was created as the firstborn in order to reflect something of who the second person of the Trinity is. And Israel was called the firstborn because Israel was called to succeed where Adam failed. David was called to succeed where Israel failed. But of course, as Psalm 89 pointed out, if it's up to us to succeed where our fathers failed, this is a story that has the same refrain and it keeps going on forever because humanity doesn't reflect God anymore. We have fallen into sin. We no longer show forth the image of God. We need a firstborn son of God who will truly reflect the Father's will. And this is what Jesus says about himself. In, in John 5.19, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, for whatever he does, that the Son does likewise. The Son is the image of his Father. John 5.26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. This is what Paul is saying in verse 19, chapter 1 here, where he says that in Christ all the fullness dwells. All the fullness of God. This is chapter 2, verse 9 of Colossians. Paul says, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Adam could never be more than a pale reflection of God compared to the glorious fullness of the deity in the, in the Son of God's love. The eternal Son of God reflects the true glory and brilliance of the Father because they are not two separate beings. They are one God. It's why we say in the Nicene Creed that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not created, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. It's because the Creed was reflecting on what Paul's saying here in Colossians 1. As the true and perfect image of the Father, the Son does whatever He sees His Father doing. And that's where we now are, are conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. And so we too are called sons of God. We partake of the inheritance. And this is where the, the Scripture will regularly speak of all Christians as sons. And that's where, ladies, you might say, oh wait, how come I get called a son? Well, don't worry. The guys get called bride, so if the, so if the, if, if, if the gals get called son, the guys can be called bride, we're good. Because, uh, because part of the point that Paul's making in both of these images is that we all, male and female, share in the same sonship of Christ. We all, male and female, share as, as together in the bride of Christ. And that's where... These, these images are, are important and helpful for us to really get a hold of. 
So when Paul says that Christ is the image of God, his first point is that Christ is eternally the image of God. He's not speaking here of the humanity of the Son of God, but of His eternal divinity. He is the divine Son. He is the image of God before Adam and Eve were created. So, this is where what Paul what Paul's pointing out, and you see this in many places throughout the New Testament, is that the one who repairs Adam's fault is the one whom Adam himself was modeled after. This is where what... What God is doing in all of human history is that it's the divine son who will become the human son in order to repair the Adam's failure. Adam is not the first image. The eternal son of God was the image of the invisible God before God created man after his own image. That's why Paul says in verse 16 that this image of the invisible God, this firstborn of all creation, is the one by whom all things were created in the heavens and on the earth, things visible, things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. The eternal Son of God, the Son of God's love, was active in the creation. We're told in Genesis 1 that in the beginning God said... And it's by his word that he created all things. The Apostle John tells us in John 1 that the the Son of God is the word, the, the logos of God. And as God spoke forth his command, it was by his word, by his Son, that all things were created. And notice how complete Paul's listing is. Everything in heaven was created by the Son. Everything on earth was made by him. And Paul makes clear, it's not just the visible things, it's also the invisible things. There is nothing in all of creation which the Son of God did not create. And he goes through this list of of ruling and authority words, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers. These were terms that Jewish teachers would sometimes use to refer to various angelic authorities. And as we'll hear later, the the Colossians were, were facing a heresy which was teaching that we should worship angels. And Paul makes it perfectly clear that Angels are mere creatures. They were created by the Son of God. Do not worship the creature. Worship the Creator. Only God can save. Adam had rebelled against the Creator, and only the Creator could redeem him. Angelic powers could not reconcile us to God. They don't have that authority. Only God Himself can save sinners. It's, it's why the Nicene Creed goes on to say, Who for us men and for our salvation became man. It's only the eternal Son of God, the one by whom and for whom we were created, who can save us. Nothing else in all of creation can save. Not angels, not other people. No, only God can save. And He is before all things, verse 17. And in Him all things hold together. There's nothing else in all creation that compares to Him. Not only has he created all things, but he holds all things together by the word of his power. Now, when you go for a walk, do you normally think of how all things are held together by Christ? I hope so. Look at what the Son of God is doing around you when you go for a walk. The trees, the birds, the animals, the sun shining by Christ's authority, the rain showering upon us with his blessing. You 
cannot move a muscle without the mercy of God. Without the sustaining grace and providence of God, this universe would implode instantly. There is nothing in all of creation which can escape God because all things consist in His Son. If you think about it, you know, Abraham Kuyper once said, there's, there's not a single square inch of all creation of which Jesus Christ does not say, this is mine. And that's not just a statement about, it's, it's, it, it's mine, it should be mine. I, sort of, no, it's, this is mine. He is holding it together at every moment. This is, apart from the word of his power, it would vanish instantly. Remember that when you are faced with trials and difficulties. You will never face anything that is outside the control of the Son of God, your Savior. Because that's where Paul goes next. Verse 18. He is the head of the body, namely the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, in order that he might become preeminent in all things. So not only is he the firstborn of creation, he is also the firstborn from the dead. He is the center of creation. He is also the center of redemption. And, and Paul uses four words to express this point. He says that he is the head. He is the, the one who is, is the authority. Angels have no authority except under Christ. All authority on earth and heaven belongs to, to me, Jesus says. So he is the head of the body. And he is the beginning, the source. Until Christ started our redemption, there is no redemption. But he is also the firstborn. He is the firstborn among now many brothers. But not this time the firstborn of creation. This time it is the firstborn from the dead. I mean, you think about, you think about, oh, well, but there were others who were raised from the dead before him. Lazarus in his own day. And Elijah and Elisha raised people from the dead. But all those people died again. All those resurrections weren't really resurrections. They were just being temporarily raised. But our Lord Jesus Christ was not just raised from the dead. His resurrection, he, was, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, never more to die again. Without Christ's resurrection, there is no resurrection. Paul will write a whole chapter about that in 1 Corinthians 15. But in Christ, the new creation has come. He is the firstborn from the dead, which also means there will be more. Because, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, therefore those who hope in him will also be raised in and with him. And all of this, so that in everything he might be preeminent, not only in creation, but also in redemption. The center of the Christian life is Christ. Verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself, making peace through the blood of His cross, whether things on earth or things in the heavens. It's because all the fullness dwells in Christ that He becomes the reconciler. This is where all those sons of David, they were some good ones, but... They died because all the fullness of God did not dwell in any of them. 
We needed one who was himself God and man in one person. If Jesus Christ is not fully God, then you and I are not fully saved. But Paul says that because in him the fullness dwells, therefore by him he reconciles all things to himself. Now, what does it mean that he reconciles all things? Uh, Sometimes scripture speaks in terms of God's wrath and judgment falling on humanity and how we are sort of saved out of the world. Other times scripture speaks in terms of how God saves the world and destroys the wicked out of it. It's just two different ways of saying the same thing. It depends on whether you're looking at the world as the good creation of God, which God loves and reconciles, or whether you're referring to the world as the rebellious realm under the power of the devil, in which case that will be destroyed. And so here, Paul's using, you might say, the first way of talking. He's talking about God saving the world, reconciling all things to himself. This is not thinking in sort of individualistic terms. He's not saying that every individual will be saved. He's rather saying that the creation as a whole will be reconciled. If you think about it, it's like our own redemption. Is, does God save everything about you? Well, if you think about it, every part of me that's sinful is, gets removed. That doesn't, that doesn't stay. It, it, this, is, this is the point of our sanctification, that we become more and more like Jesus. So in the same way that everything that's sinful about me will be, must be put to death, and destroyed in the same way everything that is wicked about creation must be destroyed and those those who trust in Jesus will be saved because really the question is do you belong to Christ because if you are still alienated with Christ and enemies with him then he will destroy those who oppose him and seek to destroy his kingdom But that's why Paul says to the Colossians in verse 21, And you, once being alienated and enemies in your minds in the works of evil, now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and without reproach in his sight. Because we were all enemies once. We were all alienated through sin. We were all hostile to God doing evil deeds. How can those who are enemies, how can those who are hostile become reconciled? Well, this is what the beloved Son of God did in the body of His flesh through death. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The One who was God, the One who was with God in the beginning, reconciled us in the body of His flesh. I think sometimes we have this crazy idea that education can fix people. If we just gave them the right information, they'll make the right decision. By now we should realize that doesn't actually work. Ever notice that Jesus spent at least three years teaching, training, talking, educating his disciples? And what happened? At the end of three years, his disciples all bolt and they're nowhere to be found when the moment comes. Talking is not going to fix you. What is it that changes you? What was it that changed the disciples? Well, on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit filled those same disciples. 
And all of a sudden, these guys who were running for the hills when they thought they might die are boldly preaching Christ in places where they know well people want to kill them. Something changed. What changed? Uncreated grace. The person of the Holy Spirit. God himself came and dwelt with them. How did the beloved Son of God do this? He reconciled you in the body of His flesh through death. You see, the gospel is not a self-help manual. The gospel is not a message of how to live a better, happier life. The gospel, the good news, is that God has done in Jesus what we could not possibly do for ourselves. He died for our sins. He was raised for our justification. We have been reconciled by the beloved Son of God coming in our flesh and bearing the wrath and curse of God due to us for our sin so that He might present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Apart from Christ... You are unclean. You are flawed. You are rightly accused. In Adam, I sinned. In Adam, I died. In Adam, I fell into an estate of sin and misery. But now the beloved Son has reconciled us in the body of His flesh through death. We have been joined to the Son of God by faith so that He might present us holy and blameless and above reproach before God. Did you know that you are now holy? Not saying you never sin. And you still got to repent of your sins. And and repentance doesn't just mean saying you're sorry. Repentance means turning away from them. And that's a hard, lifelong process. But, Paul's really clear about this. You are holy in the sight of God. When God looks at you, if, if you have believed in His Son, if you have confessed your sin, if you turn to Him in faith, when God looks at you, He sees holy. Why? Because He sees you in His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why the beloved Son died, that you might be holy and blameless before God. Now, I can imagine someone sitting there saying, Oh, so you Christians think you're so blameless. That's why you think you can get away with all those horrible things. Well, this is why Paul doesn't stop there. He adds an if. There's a condition here. The sentence that started in verse 9 is not over. If indeed you remain in the faith, grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, hear me clearly. Salvation comes entirely free and without preconditions. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There's no way to qualify yourself for salvation. Remember verse 12. He qualified us. But once you believe, you you do have to keep believing. And faith is no dead faith. Faith keeps believing and acts accordingly. Grounded, steadfast, not moved away, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. That hope, that confidence that our Lord Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of the Father, that when He, when He returns, when, when He comes, we will be made like Him. That hope keeps us walking by faith, 
growing in love. It's one of those things where there's there's the two different dangers that you got to stay away from both of them. You, you, on the one hand, some might might come away saying, "Oh, I'm just I'm not I'm not what I should be. I see so much sin. I, I'll never be perfect." Well, part of what goes on there is there's a certain amount of navel gazing that winds up happening. We get so introspected, we're we're constantly looking in, into ourselves, and we're caught up in all all of our problems and. And that's not where Paul calls you to be. Because his whole point here is to get you to look at Jesus. You don't look at yourself to find out what your spiritual condition is. You look to Christ. I remember when I was in college, there was, there was a group who, they, were, they, were, they got tired of just the ordinary, how are you doing? Oh, fine. And like, yeah, that's not true. How are you doing spiritually? And so every, you know, every, every time you, 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 you have a conversation, with, it was sort of this deep sort of spiritual introspection thing. And I, I kind of got a little tired of it. So one day somebody asked, how are you doing spiritually? And I said, I'm doing great. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I've been raised with him. I'm seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of the Father. I couldn't possibly be doing any better. My sins are forgiven. The Holy Spirit is with me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because in Jesus, I'm a child of God the Father. No power in heaven or earth can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's how I'm doing spiritually. Now, if you want to know whether my mind has fully comprehended what this means or how, if, whether my experience has caught up to the reality, that's another question entirely. But how are you doing spiritually? You're seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. That's how you're doing spiritually. And because this is where I, I grew up in, that, in what I would sometimes refer to as a manic depressive spirituality that was constantly bouncing back and forth, up and down as to how you were feeling spiritually. <sighs> it was exhausting. And it was when I got a hold of Paul's point here in Colossians 1, it was like, oh, this is who I am. This is where, where I'm in Christ. That's who I am. And so if this is who you are in Christ, then your life ought to start to reflect it more and more. Indeed, I've been suggesting this is what the book of Colossians is all about. Who is Christ? What has he done? Who are we in Christ? And what does that mean for our lives? So if you trust in Christ for everything, first for your salvation, but for everything, because Paul insists that Christ has the preeminence in everything. If you trust in Christ for everything, then your confidence, your hope is in him. And so Paul says, then continue in the faith. Continue to live your life by his grace, looking to him to sustain you and, and comfort you day by day. Lord, have mercy upon us and help us because we are weak and frail and we forget these things and we get pulled astray by every fancy of, of life and, and help us to remember who we are in Christ, that you have seated us with your Son in the heavenlies, that we might no longer be slaves of sin and death, but that we might be your own children, fellow heirs with Jesus. Help us to live in that hope and with that comfort. In Jesus' name, amen.